A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello and welcome to the 90th episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host, the guy you're listening to, and maybe I'm full of bullshit. <laughs> I could be full of bullshit all the time. Probably I am. But you're going to be able to tell if I am or not when you listen to this episode. That's why I have on Jevin West. He's the author, the co-author, along with Carl Bergstrom, of a book called Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. So this, I think, is a really, really important episode. I'm glad you're here listening to this. I'm glad Jevin came on to share this info and wrote this book. But this is about developing the skill of how to tell if you're being bullshitted, if you're being deceived purposely or non-purposefully. Maybe you've even shared an article or data that you thought was true, but turned out to be false. So this is the kind of, this is the skill that I think everybody needs. I don't have the skill yet. I'm going to be working on developing this, but like we're going to look into how to figure out uh, correlation doesn't mean causation. We're going to dive into that kind of stuff and like how you're being misled with graphs and charts and numbers. So, and this is, it doesn't matter the politic, your politics or anything like that, a skill everybody should have regardless of your views on stuff. So that's it. Let's get to it. Here's Jevin West. And it's happening. What's up, Jevin? How you doing? What's up, Travis? Thanks for having me on here. Heck yeah. Thanks for being on. I appreciate you taking the time on, on the weekend, nonetheless. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it, you know, like, like I was saying before we got started, this has been a busier week than usual. Uh, plenty of misinformation out there to debunk. Um, and also our book was released on Tuesday. So having fun talking with people about that as well. Yes. Congrats on the book. And I got to, I got to congratulate you on the title too. I love it. You know, calling bullshit. It's, it's a good title that grabs you, but it's not just it's not just bullshit for, you know, you don't, you don't just throw like a little swear out there for no reason. It actually makes sense. No, I'm glad you, you called that out because Carl and I, who's my co-author, Carl Brickstrom, who's another professor at the University of Washington, we have talked about this ad nauseum that, you know, we didn't want to use it just to use it, like you said. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes swear words in, in discussions with friends or dinner, sometimes it's overused. But we wanted to be very careful about this particular one. But we take it very serious. In the book, we talk about the philosophy of bullshit and how, um, you know, academics are taking it serious, um, as, as a topic, um, researchers in areas like, you know, social psychology are taking it serious. So we, we, we didn't want to use it just to use it. In fact, we have a non-swear word version, at least of our website that has callingbull.org. And that's mostly for like the high school students and teachers we work with. And so we don't want that to distract from the content. We take the content very serious. We could take the words out, but it is, it is, it is a statement. And as you read it in the book, there's reasons why um, we decided to label the book that way. Right. No, I mean, it makes sense. So I, I think a good place to start then is, can you define you know, what bullshit is then? Yeah. So as with any definition, if we take the word very serious, we also take the definition very serious. So, you know, we'll quibble over a comma or a word in the definition. It's changing. You know, these definitions change. But we've kind of settled on this definition where bullshit, uh, we think, involves language and rhetoric, of course. People know that. But it also involves statistical figures, data graphics, and other forms of presentation mainly intended to persuade um, by impressing and sometimes just overwhelming a reader or listener with blatant disregard for truth or logical coherence. 
And that's different than a liar. So a liar, like Harry Frankfurt, who was a philosopher that wrote about bullshit um, uh, a long time ago, well, not a long time ago, but before us, and not a long time ago, actually, you know, within decades, um, he, uh, he also notes how liars, they know the truth, and they're sort of just pulling you away from the, the, the truth. Um, whereas bullshitters don't really care one way or the other. They're just sort of trying to grasp your attention. Oh, okay. So they don't, they don't really care whether they're lying or not. They're just trying to get to their, are they trying to get attention or persuade you to do something or? Yeah. It's about persuasion, overwhelming. Like I'm, you know, I'm super cool. You know, I know I have friends in these places and I did this. I, you know, I have this nice car or, you know, or, or, you know, it's, it's a lot about, um, yeah, persuading and, and, um, impressing someone. Now it doesn't mean that when you're bullshitting, you're not also lying. You can lie, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not what, uh, it's the distinguisher, I think, between liars and bullshitters, although there's, of course, overlap. Okay, no, that makes sense. And I, I think this is so important, what you guys are doing and teaching, because this is a, it's literally a skill that I think everyone needs to have. I have, a, I am not skilled at, you know, calling bullshit at all. Like, I have no idea how to get into that. And so that's why I was so excited to find you guys, find that you are writing this book, you have a course and everything. It's, it's something that everybody needs to learn. Yeah, it, to me, it's the most important class that a student could take. I wish I would have had it. And actually, as a teacher, you teach classes to get better at things. So I'm trying to get better too. So I, I would not claim to be an expert bullshitter, although I've spent a lot of time, many years now, thinking about it. Um, at a detailed level. And, and the, where my expertise is, is mostly calling bullshit on uh, the kind that comes wrapped in data and statistics and other forms of presentation. Mm-hmm. But of course, we always need to practice this. Our world's saturated with it. And, you know, sometimes bullshit isn't always uh, damaging. Sometimes, you know, we bullshit our friends. Oh, yes, that's a, that's a nice looking, uh, you know, haircut or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's times sure. when bullshitting is fine. Um, but but there's also uh, times when it can be really damaging. And I think if there's one thing that students can get out of education, really, it's to be able to identify when someone is talk- talking rot. You know, this is there's a famous quote. I, I don't remember exactly verbatim, but it was, uh, um, it was uh, the entering class, I think, of, of Oxford or something. I, I think it's Alexander Smith that said this in about the 1600s or 1700s. Basically said, you know, education doesn't give you much other than if it's successful, teach you how to identify when, you know, someone is, is, is talking rot to you. And I, and I think um, a lot of times it's not even um, when someone's always just trying to be nefarious about throwing stuff out there. It could be that these are honest mistakes, but, but the idea is that nowadays, because there's just so much information that we have to consume every day, um, we need to be able to discern the, the information that's va- that, that's of, of, of value and, and that the information that's not. So yeah, I think I, I would hope that you know everyone at some point in their education does this, and it is something that education has been trying to do when we talk about critical thinking. But we don't think Carl and I don't think we've been doing a good enough job, for example, on being able to call BS on data, um, and also this new world in which we live in, um, this world of social media and internet and you know, this flood of information we, we receive all the time, um, it makes it more difficult than ever. Um, and so I think, you know, I think we should have these requirements in high schools to have media literacy education, which many states are starting to impose those requirements and, and obviously take our class, of course, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and it's like you said, too, it's, it's really scary because people will have like, they have the best of intentions 
sharing something that they think is true on social media or whatever, yeah. but you know, they, they don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and some, and so that's the key point is that no one has, you know, full knowledge of everything. And so all we ask is that you just dig in a little bit more, maybe pause and not share until you've done a little bit of background search on it. Because when we talk about the purveyors of misinformation and disinformation, it's, it's not always some sort of evil doer sitting in some castle somewhere that's just sort of pushing things out. A lot of times it's us that's pushing it around. And, and so those purveyors, there are purveyors of misinformation, disinformation, no doubt. They're out there. Bad actors are out there. And, they're, and propagandists and opportunists, people trying to make money, people trying to push propaganda. But they take advantage of the fact that we share it. So if there's one thing that we can have people do is we sort of say, you know, think more, share less. So think a little bit more, pause for a second, read it, make sure that uh, you at least have read part of the article, not just the headline. Um, and if you don't know, if you're a little uncertain about it, even mention that, you know, I'm not quite sure. So just that little act right there, I think would help um, slow some of the, you know, the, the just massive amounts of misinformation that we're seeing. And, and I think that's not how social media platforms are built. They're built for just ease. Oh, that's easy. That made me mad. Or that was, you know, looks crazy. So share, you know, and it's, yeah. there's no checking of sources. There's no checking of who's saying this and why they're saying it. So just doing a little bit more positive. Yeah. It'd be great if there was just like a, like the, the share button was grayed out until you read a certain amount of it or yeah. like a little checkbox uh, or something, you know? Exactly. Honestly, if that change right there could be imposed, the world would be a better place. And I'm not kidding. I think, and, and, and so some of the social media companies have talked about it. I wish they would apply just that very simple kind of design where you can share it fine, but I, I just want you to at least, you know, please pause for a second and maybe, you know, commit to saying that you've read it or something, something like that would be nice. And also as a reader, I can say, ah, my friend who I do trust, not only are they just sharing it, they have read it. There's a little box there that says they've read it, or at least they've said they had. I mean, if they were lying, fine, but, um, but at least there's some possible indication that they've read it and, and yeah. kind of vetted it. Something to kind of like give them a, make them pause a little bit, like give yeah. them an extra box to check or something. Yeah. yeah like that. Add some great. friction into the line because exactly. things just flow too easy. Just adding a little friction might be good because there's just, it's, it's just going out there too much. There's a lot of good information out there too, but it gets drowned out by a lot of this information that's, that taps into our emotion, that taps into our confirmation bias, that taps into those sort of deep centers of our brain that we, it's almost unconscious. We're like, yeah, it has to believe it because that's how the world must work. Or, you know, Bill Gates must be, you know, trying to inject vaccinations as a way of controlling all of our minds or something, you know, I mean, it's crazy enough. And if you see it enough, maybe it starts to be true because you see it a lot or something. Right. Yeah. Well, and this, I think we should touch on this too, is that how this is not, this is a skill that everybody should learn. It's not like it's not like you guys are politically motivated to one side or anything like that. Everybody should have this skill regardless of your views or anything like that. Right. Exactly. And, and we stress it in our class, like the first day of class, the last day of class, middle of class. In the book, we stress it. This is not a partisan issue. And when we provide examples of bullshit, at least in the political arena, we really try hard to provide examples from both. When we do it from media, we try to do it from the left and the right. And actually, a lot of the time, we avoid the political arena because that's such low-hanging fruit. We tend to look in other places where, you know, health... Uh, uh, misinformation, science misinformation, 
um, information that's that's not just uh, the easy political um, target. So, but if we do go into that arena, we do try and provide examples from both because really this is something we should all want to do, regardless of your views on taxation or regardless of your views on welfare. I mean, we as a democracy want all citizens to be informed. So then as we come to these collective decisions and we have these collective conversations, that we all have the best information. That's, that's what we all want. Because if, if you disagree with me on tax policy, that's okay. I, I, I'm, great with, I'm happy with that. I, I definitely want you, when you're making your arguments, to have the best information possible, though, so right. that we can, we can both get to some common ground. So I think a lot of this is about digital citizenship, too. And it's about uh, making sure that we don't attack individuals and that we attack the argument, that we don't you know, start with an ad hominem attack, that we say, okay, let, let's see if we can, we can get to um, you know, a, a good solution to a question we might have, but we want both to have good information. So it's not a partisan issue at all. We try hard, but it's, it is difficult um, in, a, in, a, in a world right now that's, at least in the United States, that's very politically divided. Yeah, right. So, Jevin, is this, can anybody learn this skill or do you, do you have to be like not a dummy or what? Do you yes, just need to put no, the time that's, in? If there was only one thing we talked about today, Travis, and already you've hit on a, a lot of great questions and things that we care a lot about, um, but absolutely anyone can do this. So if anything, I, I think the book should be in a self-help section because I think all of us feel intimidated at times when we're trying to sift through information, especially information that has fancy statistics and graphics or someone um, seems to be you know, a real authority and, and speaking a lot of jargon or there's just, it's just hard to sift through all of it. And the whole point of the book isn't to say, Hey, you're not smart enough. Like, you know, this is, you know, only those that are really, you know, well-trained in this can call bullshit. The whole point of the book is that anyone can call bullshit and they don't need PhDs in statistics or computer science to call bullshit on data. They don't need PhDs in logic and rhetoric and, you know, philosophy to be able to call BS in other realms, anyone can do it. The, the whole point is to just sort of break down some of the simple rules that get you most of the way. Now, sometimes there are more complicated data arguments. There's more complicated um, work that needs to be done, more, more domain knowledge in a specific area. That's fine. Um, and we talk about that in some, some way. But, but right, right now, I, I think um, most of the BS that at least we see could easily be um, knocked out with just some of the simple rules that we talk about in this book. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. That's encouraging. Yeah. And I would say not even in the book, because I mean, we, this started as a class. So, like, we've tested certain things that seem to work with students, some things that, that don't seem to work. We have a, a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't even land in the book, but it's, um, you know, it, it does take practice. It, it's a little bit more laborious than just sharing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it takes a little bit of work, but it's, it's, it's something that we need to in, ingrain into our culture, that we're all out there doing a little bit better job cleaning up our information environments because we all that's where we live a lot of our life now i mean of course we have our physical worlds but we spend so much time there and our, our economies our political process our our you know our world uh, decision making does live a lot in this this information world and we need to have citizens just like we don't sort of throw garbage out on the highway as we're driving down the highway we can't throw garbage on the information highways either we need to be a little bit more responsible to build that culture and to also not be offended if it's called on us because we all make mistakes. We all get it wrong. We all bullshit too. 
In yeah. fact, one of the things that Carl and I joke a lot about is that we say, um, you know, it's important to be, let's say, carbon neutral as a country or as a community. We should also be bullshit neutral. Um, you know, we're all spewing bullshit. So at least let's do, let's try to balance that by, by calling it out and, and not, and not to be offended when we get called out, as long as it's not an attack on our character. If it's, if Carl and I call BS on each other and have for, you know, 15 years all the time, and we, and we really, we really depend on that so that we don't say stupid things because we all have stupid thoughts sometimes about, oh, well, I read this study and, and, and it is that vitamin C is, is really the fix all for everything. Ah, well, actually, you, did you read the study, Jevin? You know, so, yeah. uh, you know, so we push each other on that and we want to do that. And I think a, a strong community, a democracy that's functioning well is, is, is doing that. And so we need to sort of build the rules around that and, and build a culture of being uh, sort of responsible BS colleagues. Mm-hmm. No, that's good because I, yeah, I swear I'm, I'm full of bullshit every day that I have no idea. So. <laughs> well, me too. Hey, Travis, yeah. I do it too. And I catch myself and I've, you know, spent years thinking about this now and I, I still catch myself. It's just part of human communication. It's just, we need to be careful with the current world in which algorithms now are amplifying it. Social, uh, social media com- uh, platforms, you know, the internet more broadly, there are bots out there. Uh, you know, you have, you know, bad state actors that are, you know, hijacking these systems too. I mean, we're, we're just, we're up against more, more than ever. Uh, and that's why we have to get, we all have to get better at it. Yeah, totally. So what are some, uh, I mean, are there like some basic types of things to kind of spot something that's bullshit or untruthful or anything that we could kind of, you know, start with as a, as a primer? Start with being curious. That's why I love your podcast. And actually, when I came in the invitation, I'm like, perfect. <laughs> Honestly, one of the big things is truly to be curious. And I don't say that just as, uh, you know, some, you know, flipping advice that just comes off the top of my tongue. I, I, it's, there is some research out there, some really interesting research that's been done recently uh, over the last three or three to five years that looks at the role that curiosity can play. So those, that are more curious, uh, you know, tend to do better on some of these uh, tests of, of whether you will fall for misinformation or, not, or how to get yourself out of it once you sort of get pulled into um, some of these claims or stories. Um, and there, there's been a lot of questions about, one, can you measure curiosity? Turns out you kind of have. There, there's a researcher wow. at Yale University, uh, Kahan, um, that um, uh, has done a bunch of nice stuff in this area. There's, there's you know, the other question. So can you measure it? That's one thing. Um, there's also, um, uh, whether, you know, whether you can teach it, whether you can get better at it turns out also that I, that you can do that as well. Um, that there are ways in which you, you know, we're all curious. Humans are curious, um, by their very nature. And so there, I think teachers and librarians just need to kind of do what they do well and, and sort of just nurture that. And, and I think if we can do that more in society, we'll do things like ask like, okay, wait, you just showed me this data graphic. Where did that data come from? Who collected it? How was the sample put together? Um, why, you know, how, how is it that this person that has an MD by their name is making this claim about, you know, hydroxychloroquine when they also were, like, you know, making claims that, you know, demon sperm is, you know, uh, you know what causes like, you know, STI, you know, sexually transmitted diseases and, and things like that. I mean, yeah. they're, they're just by being curious, I, I think, um, one, that, that's a great antidote to this. And, and that's the other. And it really, um, 
is all about a lot of the things that we talk about, um, where, you know, asking simple questions, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, or if it sounds too bad to be true, it it probably is. So a curious person or a curious reaction to that would be, wait a minute, right? really? There, Mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, you know, the average person eats, you know, a thousand oranges a year. Oh, wait a minute. You know, so you're, you're, you're just going <laughs> to sit here, these kinds of things and just being curious. And so that's why, you know, I loved your podcast. So that, those are some of the things generally it's just being curious, uh, um, looking out for those kinds of things. Now we provide specific, um, uh, strategies when it comes to data misinformation. We also talk a lot about the philosophy of BS and also in calling BS. The whole point of the book, the book is not spotting BS. Actually, Harry Frankfurt wrote about that before. This is a book about calling BS. So it's, it's very much this, this performative act. And when you've spotted it, and you, there's a set of tools for spotting it by being curious, by asking questions about the source, about the data, whether it sounds too good to be true, whether they're comparing apples to oranges, speaking of oranges, mm-hmm. um, whether there's uh, selection bias issues, whether there's um, you know, a correlation causation mistake that's going on, understanding a little bit about the environment in which these, um, in which the claim may have rooted. So these are kinds of things, but it's really at the root of it is curiosity. And so that's why I just, that's why I really, you have the right title for your podcast for sure. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, well, first off, that scares me that you can measure curiosity because now if I get tested, I'm low on the scale. People are going to be like, <laughs> who's this guy yeah. with a podcast yeah. called Curiosityness? And he's yeah. a one out of 10. I bet you'd be just fine, Travis. I, you'd be really good. And I can even give you the paper. I think it was published in Advances in Political Psychology. It's been a bunch of papers from since then. But Dan Cahon uh, out of Yale has done some real nice work recently figuring out how to measure it, uh, how to. Um, you know, and others have thought about how do you sort of uh, how do you nurture this and how do you promote it. But one interesting thing from that, uh, one of the papers that came out was that it wasn't just science comprehension um, that um, what, that was a feature that of people that that did well on some of these um, tests, these cognitive tests. It was, um, in fact, some of the people that had a lot of comp- high comprehension used their sort of used what's called motivated reasoning to sort of fit whatever narrative they want. So Republicans that had, you know, a fair amount of science training and comprehension and Democrats that had a fair amount of science, uh, comprehension and training, they both kind of could take a piece of news and, and sort of internally motivate themselves to showing why it's true and, and in alignment with their narrative. Um, but it, so it wasn't, so it wasn't necessarily science comprehension, but it was those in these tests that were just simply curious and there was various ways in which they tried to indicate curiosity that did that. So anyway, it's something, it's something interesting. And I, I think it's hard to show, you know, psychologists have a hard time because humans are complex right. and, and setting up experiments to show these things for sure and ways to measure them is difficult. But that said, I, I think, um, I think, it, you know, intuitively we, you know, I've seen that with, with students that tend to be curious or tend to be more and more curious after the class and exercises about how to look for, for the, uh, so do you do you purposefully kind of say, you know, rather you say curi- be curious rather than as opposed to maybe be skeptical because it's like you should try to approach your as you're diving into these and seeing, you know, where numbers come from and is is there comparing the proper things together? Should you kind of approach it with just the, the curious mind like you're just looking into it where as opposed to kind of coming into it with a mindset of already like this ain't good or this is great or something like that? 
No, it's a really inter- it's a really interesting question you're asking because I do think it's kind of both. I mean, you do want to be skeptical, but skepticism and curiosity are different. I just find that curiosity is less uh, sort of politically charged. If it's a if it's a you know around a political issue, you you're, you're just more curious. It does. You're not a try like when you're curious, you're not necessarily questioning a person's character or because skepticism sometimes like I'm skeptical of you or I'm skeptical of this argument. It's, we certainly encourage skepticism. Um, skepticism is just, uh, it's a little, it's a slightly different attitude about it than curiosity. Curiosity would just be like, hmm, interesting. So you're, so you're, you're making the claim um, that, you know, that I should or should not use vaccinations. Um, curious, where, where's your data, you know? And, and so you can be skeptical in that way, but cur- a, a curious a curious sort of bent to it, just, it seems less abrasive, less aggressive. Um, and so for yourself and with the individual that you might be talking with. Um, so I don't know, I've been thinking, you know, certainly we want to encourage skepticism, but I've been thinking more and more that it might, it may be that curious response to things. That's the right way to at least start these arguments or discussions with people. Right. Well, it seems like if you're curious, you'll you'll dive into it and and see why something is. Where if you're skeptical, it's just you can maybe end it at that. You're just skeptical, yeah. done. You know, that's right. You're skeptical, you're done. Exactly. You're you're skeptical, which is good, and probably didn't believe something that might have been false. Probably false. But curious, you want to take the step further, and you're like, wait a minute. But where did that come from? Why did you, I wonder why you believe this? Um, interesting. So, how, I see. So that interacts with your values um, and. And you've been communicating and getting a lot of your information from this site. Ah, okay, interesting. Um, and that was the paper you're reading. Oh, let me look at that paper. Let, you know, or so, you know, it's it's more following it. And a skeptic is like, you're a little more aggressive. You're more a little bit more like a lawyer um, than uh, you know maybe in you know encyclopedia and like Wikipedia. And I have a colleague, Mike Caulfield, who talks about it like this. Try to you know what he he always says is um, you know he wants people to be more um more more like i guess he's how does he say less like less like attorneys and more like reporters like you're 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 you're, like i you know travis yours everything you do in your podcast is very much being curious and learning about things and asking questions of people and and there's nothing aggressive about you i mean maybe you're aggressive outside the (laughs) the podcast (laughs) but i don't sense that at all i mean and if we did that more online and and stop you know we wouldn't our first reaction wouldn't be to attack the person, although we do say you need to question the source. But um, so, yeah, it's somewhere in that fine line of being curious and skeptical. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that, I mean, that makes total sense. That's good to hear. Um, can you kind of explain, I feel like a, something that is confused a lot is kind of the, the correlation and causation type of stuff. Can you just kind of give a, a kind of a brief overview of, you know, how that stuff kind of gets confused or works together? Yeah, correlation, causation, it's one of the more difficult things for us to separate because as humans, we look for causative links between things. So if we see that um, it's cloudy outside, therefore it's cooler or it's more likely to rain, sometimes there is a causative, there there is a strong link between the two. Uh, The problem is we make the mistake over and over and over again. Um, of linking two variables um, that may not have any causative link. So we mm-hmm. talk about in our book this great example. It's tongue-in-cheek, of course. Um, a statistician published an article that showed 
um, and this is real data, um, the number of storks um, in various countries and the number of babies born in various countries. So um, you see there is a correlation between the number of storks born in a country and the number of babies born, mainly because bigger countries have more storks and therefore also have more babies. But it's not that storks are necessarily delivering babies. But of course, he makes the claim at the end being funny. um, And of course, being facetious that that storks must therefore deliver human babies. Or it would be like it would be like, uh, you know, going into uh, babies are us when we used to have. I think they're now out of business. But if an alien dropped down into Babies Are Us, they go, wow, weird. These humans walk into the store and then like three months to, and three months later, they have babies. It must be that Babies Are Us is like inducing babies to right. have or humans to have babies. When in fact, yes, there is a correlation. Those that go into stores are looking for car seats and baby things and they do have a baby like three months later. Um, and so these kinds of things happen all the time. And it turns out it's, it's really, really, really difficult to get at causation. I mean, scientists and engineers, researchers, they're constantly trying to get at causation because that's a lot of time what we're looking for. You know, you took drug A and it stopped uh, disease, um, disease A or whatever, um, or it didn't stop disease A, but it stopped disease B. You want these direct correlations, you, you want, or not correlations, you want to look for those causative um, links between variable A and variable B. Uh, turns out it's really hard to do, and sort of the 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 highest level of um, uh, method that can get you there is like these random control uh, trials, like that we're seeing right now a lot with these uh, viruses uh, or these um, vaccines to mm-hmm. against the uh, COVID nineteen virus. Uh, but the the problem is um, it's not easy to do it. It's very expensive. It's difficult to set up. Sometimes it's not um, ethically right. Um, so we'll say, okay, we're going to give a vaccine. You know, you probably do have COVID. Um, you don't, um, or we don't think you do. Uh, we're going to give it to this group and not to this group, but it could save, you know, this group from not getting COVID or something. So, um, there's, there's challenges to, to what are called RCTs, these random control trials. So, um, it's, it's something that we devote an entire chapter to this correlation causation. Cause when we talk about it in class, students always say, ah, correlation doesn't imply causation. I know let's move on. And then we go, okay, well, let's do some tests. So we do some quizzes and tests and, and students realize fast how difficult it is. It's hard for me. It's hard for scientists. It's hard for any of us to get mm-hmm. at it. And there's been some really nice demonstrations, um, uh, online. There's a, a, a former law student, I think at Harvard, Tyler, uh, vegan Neven. I always pronounce it wrong. So I, I apologize, Tyler, but your work is great. Uh, he puts out, he did a, a great, uh, website, uh, uh, looking at spurious correlations. So he went and grabbed a ton of different data, looking at different time periods and did what we call in data science as data dredging and just look between a, a relationship between one variable and another. And voila, like, Nicholas Cage movies um, correlate highly to people that drowned every year or something, you know, to these effects, you know, right, we give sure. some examples. Tyler has great examples. And then if you look at the graph, they're like totally online. But as soon as you sort of move beyond that little window where it was just by chance together, they of course fall apart and there's no link because if there was a link, you would beg Nicholas Cage not to be in any more movies. Um, yeah. But there's no correlation. There. We will there's anyway. no causation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So anyway, so that's the, the point. So it's correlation causation is a really important thing for us uh, information consumers to get better and better at identifying, recognizing how difficult it is, and, and learning the methods by which we can get at our, our causation. Okay. Yeah. And it, I mean, like, 
yeah, it is so tough because, you know, when you say these examples, it's like, well, duh, obviously the storks yeah. aren't causing babies. And like that, those are such good examples, I think, to get your mind into it to kind of understand it. But then, yeah, like it, it's hard to understand, to, to, you really need to almost everything you see like that, you need to take some time to really think about it and try to understand if it is correlation or causation. Totally. And so what we do in our classes, we do these exercises where we diagram, we put these circles, which represents, uh, or some squares or whatever. And these just simple like dotted lines when we're not sure about the, uh, the, the possible connection, we look at alternative connections. We look at alternative explanations to it. It's exercise. I, I mean, I personally do it when I'm reviewing a science paper or a proposal uh, to the national science foundation, when people are asking to, you know, they're making arguments, um, uh, that sort of involve or causation that I will sort of chart these out. Carl does as well. And we have found that it really helps us. I think it helps students. And so we encourage people when they're doing it because it is very hard. Just quickly diagram. We have some ways in which you can diagram. And we talk about it in our class and also in the book. Um, but, you know, we want to create more and more of these uh, different ways to make it easy because it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but do you have an example of um, something that seems like an example that's the opposite of being, you know, obvious that seems like a yeah. causation, but it's, it's definitely correlation? Yeah, a really a hard one that we're still sort of struggling through would be whether um, lo- giving someone like Tylenol or Advil during uh, uh, when they have a fever, mm-hmm. um, whether there is there, it, it's, it's something that's been debated for a long time about what is it about lowering the temperature that either helps or actually hinders a human body to react well to an infection that they're, they're likely fighting. Because you know, the, for, for, some, for a, a fair amount of time in the medical community, and there are those that um, ha- probably have evidence to support one side, which is that take, you know, you want to lower the temperature. So, so as soon as you get, you know, 104 degree, you know, I'm not an MD, so I'm just sort of speaking from the, on, the, on the research side that research papers that we read. And, and Carl knows this better because he's done a bunch, he's written a bunch or at least done some um, uh, more in-depth reading than I have. But if, it's an example where to get a causation there, you would have to make sure that you um, took individuals that had, you know, let's say had taken aspirin to lower the temperature and, and those that didn't lower the temperature and allowed the fever to maintain. Because some people will argue, and for good reason, that that's a, the body's natural reaction to fighting an infection. Um, but let's say you could show that one did it and one didn't. Well, then someone might say, well, it wasn't the drug itself. Maybe it was just the lowering of the actual temperature itself. It's the temperature side of it. So then you can mm-hmm. do these interesting freezing experiments with, um, you know, maybe with insects or something or, or other, you know, humans, you wouldn't, you obviously that's not ethically right. And so yeah. those kinds of things are, that's, that's a hard one. Because if you look at, look at it, it looks like, aha, um, you know, we could easily try to cre- pull out the um, causative agent here, but that it's, it's not the case. So that, there's lots of medical examples where it's not easy to tell the difference between correlation and causation. We, we provide a whole bunch of other examples also in, in, in our lecture notes and in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, something I want to talk about too, was that uh, I always get, when, what always gets me is like stats or like graphs or something. Like they just look good, you know, like, yeah. I, oh I yeah. Was, they look pretty. They look you know, like, <laughs> wow, they're professionally done. So they must be right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and it's just, it's crazy how they can be manipulated and to make it look great. Like on a simple level, like when I was doing research on this, I saw you guys 
talked about how when Tim Cook took, took over for Steve Jobs and they they're showing the the sales of iPhones are yeah. going up <laughs> and then he just does like a cumulative graph so they just keep going up so he's like doing a great job we're still selling a bunch yeah look at look I, look I started and I, we're doing great exactly cumulative plots are one of those you know those fun examples to watch out because people use them all the time to make the same claim that Tim Cook made this idea that um, if you want to make sales look good just use cumulative plots plots which is like you know, these cumulative plots, what you do is you just add on to the, the next time point to the next point and everything's going up, you know, at different, you know, speeds. Like you can actually, if you looked very carefully, you could see when the slope changes and that would tell you something about the sort of quarterly changes uh, or the sort of uh, individual time point changes. But it's hard to look at slope changes in a cumulative plot. But, but it's those kinds of things that we say look out for because they're easy tricks that people can manipulate with, but they're also can be done by accident. Because it could be like, hey, we're doing great at, you know, tests, um, you know, tests in the United States around COVID. Well, you could just create a cumulative rot and look, look, it keeps going up. Um, that, and that would be a fair comparison. Um, but these kinds of things are done all the time. Yeah. Well, and I even get fooled. Like, I'll look at my YouTube subscribers and it's going up. I'm like, hell yeah, getting more and more. Yeah. But, it, you know, <laughs> when I look at it, you know, the correct way, it's like, well, I'm kind of flatlining here, yeah, going look, down even. <laughs> exactly. So we started one of our first lectures we ever did this, you know, several years ago um, when we we recorded a lot of these lectures. You know, I, I sort of brag. I'm just, of course, of course, kidding, but saying, hey, look at our website usage on our, web, uh, on our course website. It's exploding. It's viral. And it just keeps going up. And then, of course, Carl, Carl is supposed to call me out on that and say, wait a minute. If you look at sort of the, the, the monthly usage, it's actually going down. People are caring less. They don't care. You know, they care. But I mean, it's just like uh, it's a great way of explaining how you can manipulate an argument with data and graph it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it's just it's uh, you just need to be on the lookout for things like that, especially, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think, and, and again, that's hard to do sometimes unless you practice at it. And so that's the hope is that you go through some of the examples and when you find stuff, send them to us too. We always say, oh, we need more examples for our class and we make things public so others can, can look at it and practice it too. So yeah, if you see stuff, let us know. We, we have a whole bunch of folders in our, on our computers of examples of this. So we can always give more. Uh, we'll put more of those out too as, as we go along. Right. Yeah. No, it's fun. I love those examples where it, it conveys the idea really easily and it's easy to understand and, and laugh at, but it really helps to understand what it is and how, and to spot it in the real world and when you're going through stuff. Right. No, exactly. Totally. Um, and then this is something that something that I'll do because I, you know, I really don't have these skills yet. I gotta, I gotta, you know, I'm going to get your book in the course and I gotta learn all this stuff. But like what I'll do is I'll try to find a source of like a, a publication or somebody that I trust to do this stuff for me. And then I can, hopefully they're, they're doing all this and, and they're trustworthy, but that's, that can't even, what is that called? The publication bias or something like that? Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the idea of going to those that you trust or those that are experts or those that have a good track record is something I use. And I think it's a really good, important strategy. Sometimes it doesn't scale and you might not have your colleagues and friends to be able to do that for you or whatever. Sure. Um, but, but they're, they're, the publication bias is a slightly different concept. So publication bias, um, at least in science, and it is an issue, although you know, even though science has some of its issues, it still works remarkably well. Um, it, it's a, it, it's an issue where s- researchers are publishing 
only positive results about things um, because of how the publication system currently works. So it turns out there's this arbitrary p-value of 0.05 that some fields use, and they'll do a bunch of experiments and, aha, I got one that's less, I got statistical significance with a p-value less than 0.05, and it then gets published. But what about all these negative results that don't get published? Um, what it does is it gives us a skewed view of the, of the literature, um, and, and, it, and this applies outside to some degree outside of science, too. Um, but the problem is, even if you, if you get a, a p-value of less than 0.05, it still could be something that doesn't, uh, isn't actually true. It could just be sort of something that just by chance happened, because one out of 20 chances um, you still may have had something that actually didn't show, but showed, but did give you a, a p-value of less than 0.05. And so you get, this leads to what people call publication bias, that we're biased we're to publishing positive results with this arbitrary value of p less than 0.05. Um, and it's something that science is struggling with a little bit, but they're, but they're making science to its credit. The, the enterprise of science is responding. They're doing things like uh, requiring pre-registration, which is this idea that, hey, I'm not going to give you my results. I'm just going to tell you about my experiment. And after I tell you my experiment, you have to either, you know, if you commit, you're going to publish it one way or the other. So we can get some positive mm -hmm. and negative results. And it's actually quite, could be quite transformative in science. Um, and, and these are the kinds of things that are being tweaked. And the reason we talk a lot about science is partly because, you know, we end up sourcing a lot of arguments all the way back to reports and si the primary literature in science, but also science is built with its self-correcting mechanisms to combat BS by itself. You know, that's, it's built for that. That's, it's the, the methodologies are very much about appealing to empirical evidence and, and, and following a set of uh, um, steps by which we, you know, generate hypotheses, test hypotheses, et cetera. And, and, and it's something that we could apply more generally to society. And so that's, you know, we, we talk a lot about science for various reasons. Um, but um, when we talk about science, we talk about some of the issues, though, of science and to be on the lookout for as well. Okay. But, but it sounds like in general, the, the scientific method that I learned in school is, is good still? One of the most important things you can learn. So calling BS and the scientific method, there's only two things that you'd be off and well into the world. I mean, the scientific method works remarkably well outside of science. I use it all the time. I think it's just, it's, you know, this science is one of the, you know, greatest human inventions of all time. Um, it's, a, it's a very methodical way by which we go about knowing the world. And if we applied that more generally, outside of even just science and research, I think the world would be, uh, you know, better off. It doesn't give you, it does have its limitations. Uh, it certainly has, it doesn't, it, it can't know, um, it, there's a lot of things it, it, it can't go about knowing. Um, there's, uh, you know, other forms of knowing, and we could get into a deep philosophical question or a discussion about that. But, but where it is strong, uh, it's, it's led to some of these great human inventions and improvements to the world um, that I think uh, we should, you know, that's, it's, it's proven itself. Right. Good. Well, and that, uh, you know, talking about the publication bias, that's scary because you could look at a, um, you wouldn't even have the, the publication or the info to, to see the bad results. You would have no access to that. That's right. And when we talk about this, um, how science is responding and why it is bad, actually, there was a study by this gentleman by the name of Eric Turner, who was working at the FDA. And that was one of the few places where 
in the file drawer that they had, you know, literal file drawer, there were studies done on various antidepressant drugs. And with these antidepressant drugs, they had some positive results that came about that it worked um, and some that said it didn't work. But if you looked into the literature, you would have mostly only seen the results that showed that these various drugs actually worked against depression. But Eric in his office had all these negative results too. And so when you take all the positive results, which is all we see in the literature, and then he added the negative results, you see that it's a mixed bag. It was almost, almost for many of the drugs, it was almost an even split. There was, you know, X number of positive papers that showed uh, that had positive results with that particular drug. And there was about X number, about the same of negative results. And that, and that's how science works. Usually it is a mix of things. Sure. You know, it's, it's less rare to get a definitive um, drug that absolutely um, responds. Sometimes you do, uh, and, and that's great. But, um, but a lot of times it's this mixed uh, set of results. Um, and that should, it would change people's view on that particular drug. And rather than running out and saying, nine out of 10 studies shows that this drug works, you would have to say, well, maybe six out of 10. Uh, and it changes maybe your uh, response to that. So I think there are a lot of fields that are responding by trying to have publication venues with negative results. Um, and I think more generally, we need to do that. Because when you hear the next study about you know, chocolate you know, you know, decreasing heart disease or something, you want to be like, ah, that was the 534th article that says it's positive and then there was 422 that said there's not um right. you know, that's that, that's kind of how it really works but that's not how it's, it's written in the in the media yeah and that that to me that's where it kind of gets um it gets overwhelming to try to dig into these studies like that because there's so many like even if i had all the right tools if they didn't publish the results i have no way of seeing the negative ones and like then you have to see like i guess that is that the big scary or is that the big thing that just all results need to be published well yeah so i mean there uh there in many ways yes uh people uh that work on the philosophy of science and the science of science something i spent a lot of time thinking about as much as we can make the entire science process transparent the better so if you're uh, writing code or collecting data or you're, the experiments that you're running, the more that you can make that available so someone can back, come back and replicate what you've done, um, the better. The more that we can uh, provide venues for results regardless of positive or negative, um, the better for science. So yes, uh, the, the answer to that would be the more transparent, the more open we can be about that. Then, then that's a good thing. And actually, we're seeing during this, this pandemic um, a real jump in the number of preprint articles that are published on science. So preprint articles, preprint servers have been around a long time. Actually, physicists and computer scientists on the, what's called the archive out of Cornell University, that we've, that's been used for a long time. And that's usually a place where people will do their work, put that on the archive, and then go through the public uh, peer review process uh, through journals. Um, and that, you know, that's used a lot of times to improve articles before they go, to get feedback, to do things, uh, to identify problems earlier on, to get, uh, you know, to get collective feedback from the, from the community. And um, that's not happened in other fields, biology, medicine, but it has actually during COVID for the first time. And that's a good oh. thing overall because we're getting it up. But it can also be, there's, a, there, there's one sort of negative side, which 
so if people aren't trained, journalists aren't trained to know that that's not been peer reviewed yet, they should, they need to be a little more cautious in making, you know, statements about that research because it hasn't been peer reviewed yet. Um, so it's good to get it out uh, and to be fully transparent, but then just to let the public know that there is this peer review process it still needs as well. So, but anyway, there's a lot happening in the, on, on uh, the sort of science side that I think is interesting. Just like in society, there's a lot of stuff going on as well. Mm-hmm. No, that's good to hear that stuff like that is happening because it's it's just hard for me to because I don't know I'll read an article with studies and then it's like oh well it's funded by you know right I don't know the Tabasco guys who want I, yeah. whatever it is you know no it is and and you should be doing that you should be doing that um you should always be questioning who's funding it now sometimes the funders may be just fine they and, and as long as they're transparent about the funding and how the research is done you know at least that can give you you know, some confidence, but, but you should always be questioning the funder about certain research. That's why the more that you can remove any sort of, um, bias in, you know, or, or, um, motivations of the mm-hmm. funder, uh, you know, the tobacco company funding research on whether smoking is bad for you or not, oh, you should probably question that. Um, yeah. and that, but that happens in other realms too. Okay. Man, well, Devin, this is great. I love, like, seriously, this is so good to kind of, I feel like, I hope people listening are kind of opening up to this and thinking of things that they may have been, you know, bullshitted in the past, duped. And like, now we kind of have this as an introduction. And then now we have your book to kind of give people the real practical skills and tips to actually, like, sort through this stuff. Exactly. And, and like I said at the beginning, and we try to emphasize in the book, it takes practice. And this is really a book about empowering you. Um, and it's something that, you know, I need too. I always tell my students that I need it. And I love it when students call bullshit on me. It's one of my favorite parts of the class. Some students will you know, raise their hand and say, wait a minute, you just showed that graph and you showed, uh, you made this argument, but you didn't think about this. I'm like, wow, you're right. Or they'll call me out very kindly after class or an email because they don't want to embarrass me. But I say, hey, embarrass me sometime. I need to, to know just as long as it's more about the argument and not about just about me being stupid, although sometimes I am just stupid. Um, but but I, it's, it's really, to us, it's really about empowering people to feel a little bit more confident about spotting it and refuting it because it's, it's everywhere. And so that's, uh, that's really what we're trying to get across. And we encourage people to reach out to us and you know, send us examples or things that help them. Um, there's a lot of stuff we didn't get in the book, but we can obviously make it available on the web. And, and it, it certainly helps us as we uh, think about this and try to encourage others to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's important too, like you said, how it's a book about calling bullshit and how to call it. And, you know, when somebody calls you out, they, you can, they can say because of this, this, or this, they have the tools and you can see like, oh yeah, you're right. It's not like a, right. you know, it's, it's clear. Exactly. And admit when you're wrong. Don't double down. There's so much of this double downing on the internet nowadays. It's like, just admit mistakes, you know, show, you know, be humble a little bit about how difficult it is to get to the truth. I mean, even the best scientists in the world uh, that I know of will admit how hard it is to get to the truth and, uh, you know, whether even in their area of expertise. So I, you know, it's just admitting when you're you're wrong, not doubling down, um, really trying to focus in on the data uh, and, and evidence that either supports or doesn't, and, and trying to be civil about it. Because right now, the discussions are so acrimonious right now, and I, I feel like we're, we're 
in a tough spot right now in the middle of a pandemic, you know, about to go into and already in a, a, a very um, divisive election. Um, we, we need to, you know, we need to improve that dialogue. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from seeing calling BS not as a, a, a bad thing, a, an aggressive thing, but a, a, a way to hopefully make us all a little bit, a little bit smarter, collectively smarter. Mm-hmm, totally. So uh, where should we send people listening to get your book or a course or anything like that? Yeah. So, I mean, you can, uh, well, the, the name of the book is Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. You can just search that. You can get it on Amazon. It's, it's published by Random House. You can go there. Local bookstores should have it now. Um, you can go to our website, which is kind of a fun URL it's called callingbullshit.org. Um, so just, if you just search calling bullshit, um, and then .org or something, well, it is callingbullshit.org. So you can go there and then there's a link there, but, but please, you know, reach out to us. Uh, we love hearing from readers and students and the public. Um, this is something that uh, spans all ages, it spans all industries. And, and it's something that hopefully, uh, again, makes us just collectively smarter and, and helps solve some of these big world problems we have right now. Yeah, totally. No. And, uh, for people listening, I'll have links to the, to the book and your website and everything. So they could just click on that and, and get there easy. Um, but yeah, thanks again, Jeff. And this is great. So glad you guys are here and, and sharing all this stuff. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Travis, for having me. Thanks for the discussion. And ha- thanks for having this podcast. Curiosityness is exactly what we spend some time talking about. And I'm a huge, huge fan of, of curiosity. Um, so thanks for the work you're doing as well. Yeah, of course. It's, it's fun for me. So thank you. And there it is. That was episode 90. I hope you learned a lot. For me, that opened up a big can of now I know what I don't know type of stuff. So now I feel like I really need to learn a lot about how to develop the skill of calling BS on stuff because I I just don't have these skills. It's hard to tell what is the difference. If Does correlation mean causation? No, it doesn't. It's hard to tell that stuff. So this is this was a big bowl of I need to learn more. And I hope you kind of feel that way too. So thank you to Jevin for being on and, and sharing all that info. Um, again, we have the link to his book uh, and the website down in the description, callingbullshit.org. And uh, that's it. Thanks for being here. Uh, appreciate you listening all the way through to this, the end of this episode. Maybe, you know, somebody who might benefit from the skills of this book and would appreciate this episode. I'd I'd appreciate it. I'd love it if you sent that off to them. Maybe somebody who you've seen on social media, who's sharing a lot of articles that don't seem to be true or somebody that just needs to take the time to think about what they're sharing before they do. I think that's basically everybody. Um, so share it with people, share it with your friends, family. Uh, that's all I got to say. You can send me an email to Travis at curiositiness.com with your thoughts, feedback, questions, concerns, abuses, whatever you want to send to me. And, uh, I'm on, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Trav DeRose. There's nothing left to say. This is the end of the episode. I'll see you in episode 91. We're going to be to 100 soon. Wow. All right. Goodbye.